The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What people have a harder time understanding is the way in the unwritten rules of baseball of you have to keep throwing at Manny Machado because he's not playing the right way in the minds of certain people because of the way he trots around the bases. I argue that there's a cultural subtext to that. That is how we're trying to police Latino expressions of their culture. The more they threw at him, the slower his home run trot became. And that was a, a kind of an inside-the-game dynamic going on that most people don't see. But the number of us Latinos, like, I see what's going on. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to author, professor of history, and editor-in-chief of La Vida Baseball, Adrian Burgos, who was at the All-Star Game in Miami last week. And my goodness, does he have a story about the Latino current that was running through that game. Also, I've got some choice words for the Palm Beach Gardens Police Department regarding their treatment of the great Venus Williams. I also got a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down award that you do not want to miss. I got a Kaepernick watch about what he did on July 4th, Independence Day. And lastly... I got a new segment on books I'm reading. I was going to call it Edge of Books or Books on the Edge, but I think I'm just going to call it Books I'm Reading. So let's get to it. But first, Adrian Burgos. So before I ask anything, Adrian, can you explain to our audience what La Vida Baseball is? La Vida Baseball is a digital magazine that is very much a 21st century approach to how to get media in terms of gauging players, gauging fans about the culture of Latino baseball. So it's not just what happens on the diamond. It's about life on the road. It's about music. It's about culture in terms of the food. And it really tries to take us inside of the world of the Latino ball player and to the fans as well. That's uh, fantastic. And we're going to get more into that a little bit later in the interview. Uh, but let's take us to this All-Star game, which I had just a blast watching last week. Uh, talk to us a little bit. You wrote about this beautifully in an article that we'll send out concurrent with the podcast. But talk to us a little bit about what you saw as the Latino current running through the 2017 All-Star game. It was amazing for me from the pregame honoring the Latino Hall of Famers and seeing you know, video vignettes to the Latinos who had played in the Negro Leagues, 
through the players right in front of us, Juan Marichal and Orlando Cepeda, the hometown, Tony Perez, and, you know, and then that pudge moment was pretty spectacular. Looking Talk about at, the pudge moment for those of well, us who weren't I watching. I think what's really cool is that the the other Latino Hall of Famers, those greats, they agreed that, you know what, we're going to give Pudge a Miami night he'll never forget. We're going to have him introduce last. You know, even Clemente's wow. family was introduced before Pudge. It was and, you know, it really meant, I think, a lot to Pudge to be, well, in Miami, perhaps the most Latino or Caribbean Latino of cities in the United States, to have the fans where he had played, had helped him win a World Series, cheering him on this night, the All-Star game. And I, I was, I had good seats. I happened to be um, seated with the uh, president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Idelson, and we're looking down and we see... I see Pudge, his hands are trembling because the, the mm. crowd, the moment, he's joining a very exclusive band of players. There's only 13 Latinos when he enters all time that have ever been in the Hall of Fame. And so to see the other guys, to see Rod Carew with Conrad Rulin's heart pumping him, man, it's mm. just so amazing for me as a Latino. There had never been a moment like that, not just in Miami. But really in baseball, to have that many Hall of Famers gathered together and honored by MLB. Again, for our listeners who might not be familiar with all the backstories, can you say what you meant about Rod Carew and his heart? Rod Carew, a couple of months back, had a heart transplant as well as kidney transplants. And he's had a very arduous road to recovery. And Carew, um, it so happened that there was a former NFL and collegiate football player, Conrad Rulin, who had suffered from a brain aneurysm whose family had agreed to donate his organs. And it so happened it went to Rod Carew, 71-year-old Hall of Famer. And he participated in the uh, the first ceremonial first pitch. And I know for a lot of guys, including Tony Oliva, a longtime teammate of Carew's with the Minnesota Twins, it was just so special to see Rod standing proud, tall, and smiling, tossing that ball. And also for me, I got to tell you, growing up uh... – as a Jewish baseball fanatic in New York City, Rod Carew's wife uh, is Jewish, and right. he would always uh, wear a chai around his neck. And I would have pictures up on uh, my wall growing up, like cut out magazines with the chai prominently right. <laughs> exposed. It's just so, it felt, you felt cool. You felt like you were in the club because Rod Carew had that. Right, right. And, and Rod Carew is also a New York City kid. He went migrating from Panama. He, he played in New York City. That's where he plays no Sandlot ball. He didn't even play high school ball. <laughs> you know, you know, part of your life's work, Adrian, has been trying to show this country, particularly, I mean, to be frank, like, like the non-Latino part of this country, that baseball is not the U.S. pastime, but America's pastime in the broadest possible sense, as in the Americas. And you wrote, I thought, really beautifully about how the MVP of the All-Star Game, Robinson Cano, in so many ways represents that hybrid that so often we don't recognize or acknowledge. Can you speak a little bit about the power, the representative power, if you will, of Robinson Cano? Cano, as a Dominican, the son of a Dominican ball player who made it briefly into the major leagues, but his father, Jose Cano, was so aware of the history of race in baseball that he named his son Robinson after Jackie Robinson. 
So his son was Robinson Cano. And for Robinson to take that moment to hit an extra inning home run to win the game, that wins the game, on the 50th anniversary when the hometown hero, Tony Perez, had been the only other player in All-Star Game history to hit an extra inning home run to win a game. The, you know, it's just the past and the present was brought together so powerfully in that long drive that Robinson Cano hit. I mean, it's almost like who better to hit that mm -hmm. home run than a, a Dominican kid named Robinson? And of course, on the 70th anniversary of Jackie breaking the color line as well. That's right. That's right. You know, it's just the lines of history were all over the place. And that's what made for me, the game wasn't boring. It was exciting. Every single Love run it. scored in that game was by a Caribbean player. Mm. You know, you had shoot from Baltimore, get that um, run scoring double that he's from Curacao. You know, he scored Miguel Sano, a Dominican. Then you had Yachty hit that home run and Yachty was so jazzed. And Francisco Lindor gives him a playful shove. You know, in Miami, a lot of folks I spoke to, the scene at the stadium was very, both at the home run derby and at the game, was so reminiscent of what was going on during the World Baseball Classic. It had a very Latino vibe. And I think a lot of people missed it because they weren't looking for that. They were looking at that powerful display by Aaron Judge the day before, and they expected that to happen. It's a big difference between facing Max Scherzer and facing a batting practice pitcher whose job it is to let you hit home runs. Yeah, and we're talking to you from D.C., so we know all about Max Scherzer here. Trust That's me. Right. Hey, and we're, and we're coming to you next year. Yeah. <laughs> All-star game next year is in D.C., bro. Yeah. No, no, no. And, and you, you got to hit me up when you're in town, especially right. if you've got an extra seat. Okay. <laughs> um, so... I wanted to ask you this, too. You mentioned about the Latino Hall of Famers on the field. Um, an amazing collection of talent. Baseball history stretching back decades. But who do you wish was out there, who wasn't out there, or if the person has passed away, who do you wish was being repped out there who was not out there? As a historian, I'm speaking now, um, You know, there, there's so many greats, and among those incredible players that you know i still hope one day will earn will receive not earn will receive that call or have their family receive that call are the likes of louis tiant and tony oliva and you know uh, and um of course minoso mini minoso i mean these were guys who represent a greatness in the midst of transition from one nation to another who in many ways were cut off from families and friends and still excelled at the game as a historian those lines those storylines are so palpable so poignant that it it adds to their on-field achievements i mean they played as america was in social tumult as america was having racial discord as we were trying to overturn the system of jim crow that predominated so many parts of American life, not just in the South. And these guys excelled and they made their lives anew. And you know, for me as a historian, that's where you know, it really strikes me that their story on so many levels is the American story. We just haven't fully comprehended it as that in that way because they're Latino. Mm. And let's take it to that American story circa 2017. Uh, Latino talent, as you're 
so ably demonstrating they are the spine of Major League Baseball these days. And yet these are also times of of border walls, anti-immigrant violence, ice raids. Uh, Did anyone speak to you during the All-Star weekend, whether the historic players, current players, uh, about any observations about the times in which we live? You know, they did. And actually, many of their hearts were in Venezuela. You know, Miguel Cabrera and our executive editor, Clemson Smith Muniz, wrote an article about it, uh, about Miguel Cabrera going to Insta Story and and talking about the violence that's going on in Venezuela, the the protection money that he's he has been paying to protect his family, his parents from attack, you know. And Luis Aparicio sent a, a social media message saying, you know, what a great honor to be acknowledged by MLB, but as my country is in tumult, I cannot, and and the youth of our country are being killed by the government, I cannot come to join the celebration. And that's what really people were talking about, that, you know, they're very concerned about Venezuela, and in particular that many in the United States are unaware that Venezuela is deep on the minds and hearts of the stars like Caprera, Star the the players like Francisco Civelli and even guys like Gorky Hernandez and you know who are just making it into the majors and establishing a big league career, you know I, I yeah. worry on a certain level about what may, might be happening with the Venezuelan players might be similar to what happened to the Cuban players where they have to make a, a really hard decision about. Do I continue my career in the U.S.? Do I go back home and and seek you know a, a different path of democracy there? Um, you know, it, it's it's a very perilous moment in Venezuela, and that's what the guys were talking about. Mm. Nothing about um, Trump or immigration laws in the states was was that more muted? I, I think it was more muted on the level that we're in Miami and there are so many of us Latinos there. Um, and they were very much focused on, you know, that MLB was giving them a moment uh, of celebration, of acknowledgement. And so behind the scenes, once in a while, they're like, you know, they, they noted to me in personal conversations that, you know, what a time are we living in with uh, President Trump and what's going on in Venezuela. But you know, so many of them, and I'm writing a piece about this as well, were so happy just to be together again. You know, Bert Campanera greeting a 90-year-old Choli Naranjo that most people don't mm. even know um, as a ball player and, and can't be going up and shaking his hand reverently. And it's like, you know, those moments don't happen often for these players. And so they were re- reunited. It was like a family reunion for many of them. And and they just really relished that moment. And what what are your impressions, Adrian, as a historian, uh, about the contradictions that exist today between this all American sport, America's pastime, dependent on the very people we're seeing so demonized from the top of this society? I mean, is it is it similar to any other time in in history, or at least since the the, the colorist line has been broken in terms of Latino players uh, being allowed to play in Major League Baseball? Because as you've written so ably, of course, uh, white Latino players found a place in Major League Baseball before 1947. But so, so if you could give us, what, what is your sense about 2017? How fraught is it for the Latino player? It, it is a 
fascinating moment to observe as a historian, knowing what has happened in the past, that, you know, many players have, and, you know, and the Latinos as a general have been stigmatized through the political discourse that is taken the day in D.C. in terms of being in the White House, and that, you know, they, they see Latino culture in many instances being besmirched. And, you know, so to this weekend in Miami for them was a celebration of Latino culture that raised, like, really in stark ways the difference between not tolerance but acknowledgement and acceptance of difference as a path forward versus seeing that as the problem that or the threat or the threat yeah and and we see it in baseball all the time in a very different way with the discussions of the unwritten rules of baseball many of those unwritten rules being practices that were established when when only the ball was or should i say when only the players were white and um and these players today, when it, with the bat flips of Joey Bautista and Yasiel Puig and the slow uh, trot around the bases to relish the moment of after being thrown at multiple times, Manny Machado hitting another home run against the Sox. You know, people, there, there's a subtext to all that. And that subtext is about, is America's game going to ex- expand itself and accept that multiplicity of baseball cultures. Cubans have been playing baseball since the 1860s. Dominicans and Puerto Ricans since the 1890s, since the early 1890s. This is not a recent game for us. Mexicans have been playing baseball since the 1870s and 80s as well. So this is not a recent phenomena. It's a culture that has been developed in these places. And baseball should be a celebration of all those things, not a site of nationalism that marks one group as the threat and accepts the other. And it's not, you know, it's based merely on this notion of the unwritten rules or, you know, it's, it's who signs your paycheck. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you this. And, um, and you tell me if you just agree or disagree. I feel like it's a pretty open discourse in football, for example, like when they crack down on celebrations or individual expression, people will say, well, what they're doing is they're policing blackness. It's not just about keeping things uh, chill um, or not wanting to taunt other players. It is about policing blackness. That's a lot of the language that's used, even if that some of they're cracking down also on, on, say, white players. Like the overall rubric is this is about policing blackness. I feel like when it comes to baseball, the rhetoric, the explicit rhetoric is much more about old school versus new school and valorizing the old school at the expense of the new school instead of looking at it the way you described it. Like, well, maybe they're actually policing a whole cultural expression that this new generation has grown up doing in Venezuela or the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba, et cetera. Do do you think that's a, a fair analysis? Yes, I think it's a fair analysis because, again, I'll take you back to Boston. At the same time Adam Jones is hearing the N-word flung at him, the Red Sox are throwing at Manny Machado. And so people can comprehend and understand what's wrong about Adam Jones being the receiving end of racial epithets. It's very kind of understandable how that's wrong. What people have a harder time understanding 
is the way in the unwritten rules of baseball of you have to keep throwing at Manny Machado because he's not playing the right way in the minds of certain people because of the way he trots around the bases. I argue that there's a cultural subtext to that. That is how we're trying to police Latino expressions of their culture. And so Manny kept, you know, I, I laugh because the more he hit home runs, the more they threw at him, the slower his home run trot became. And that mm -hmm. was a, a kind of an inside-the-game dynamic going on that most people don't see. But a number of us Latinos like, I see what's going on. It's about this. But American audience has, is not receptive to that message because they don't really quite comprehend it. Is one of the reasons they're not receptive, you think, because of, and I'm sure you've heard and read a lot about this, but about uh, the fact that baseball has an older demographic than other sports and that if they did a better job of marketing to young people, the young people who I think would be much more receptive to those shows of, you know, white, black, brown, what have you, but would be much more receptive to shows of just flair and joy. Uh, do, do you think that that's part of the problem? That's part of, part of what's going on. It's the, the demographic of the fans that's drawn in. The other part is why we have Levy the Baseball. Because mm. there's often not a Latino perspective on what's going on being pronounced, being demonstrated, illustrated for the fans to consume and to understand. You know, a lot of the sports writers are still, you know, pre well, first of all, are not Latino, are not Latino, eh? and they're presenting it in, in the ways that they grew up with the game. And. They're unable to, in many, most instances, to communicate with the players themselves in Spanish. And one of the things during this past week that was fantastic for me was I, I served as one of the clubhouse MCs at FanFest. And you would have a ball player come up. I would have Jose Cardinal and Bobby Ramos. And I would tell them, you know, in English or in Spanish, in English or in Spanish, you tell your story and I'll translate. Or I have Paul Casanova up here. Or I'll have Louis Tiant. And they would flow from English to Spanish and Spanish to English and talking to the fans and talking to me. And mm. I would translate when I was talking with Vera Clemente, the widow of Roberto Clemente. And I said, you know, you can tell them in English or Spanish or both, you know, and creating that kind of space to communicate is what why we created that platform called La Vida Baseball. And it's where these Latinos find their comfort zone, knowing that they're not going to be judged for how they speak English, but they're going to be heard for what they are saying. Wow. And, and you know, we've got uh, high schools and colleges that are now using the podcast as a teaching tool. So I just want to shout out there very loudly to everybody listening. Don't be a monoglot. That means don't be a one language speaker. Listen to what uh, Adrian Burgos is saying and think about the opportunities it opens up for yourself if you can speak more than one language, if you can be bi or trilingual. It's like opening up entirely new worlds for yourself. Indeed. I mean, this is why I was a clubhouse MC. MLB was looking for bilingual um, MCs that can go out there, have the knowledge, and can talk to these players. I mean, we, we interviewed Dave Winfield, Tim Raines, the, uh, Andre Dawson. We can handle those interviews because they're in English, but we could also talk to these other ball players and get their stories out there because that's really what the fans want to consume is their stories. Oftentimes, they're put through the filter of, the, of, of a sports writer who doesn't quite understand either Spanish or Latina culture, and that presents a certain image of what's happened. Right. It's it's cultural linguistics, not merely formal linguistics. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I, I, 
I got to say, some of these people that you met, and we'll wind up the interview with, with this, I mean, they're, they're less people to me than almost mythical figures. <laughs> like when you throw down names like Louis Tian, Juan Marichal, Tony Oliva, Rod Carew, I mean, these are, all, these are not like tangible humans to me, seriously. And I, I wanted to ask you, because um, I, I know you, you got that fanboy as part of you, just like yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who you met uh, gave you the biggest chill factor, the biggest goosebump factor? Who, what was it just like a beyond a thrill to communicate? You know, I'll tell you, I mean, there's so many moments, but one of the most special moments was sitting next to Bernie Williams as he's inducted mm. into the Hispanic Heritage Baseball Hall of Fame. Vera Clemente was up there, Bernie, myself, and the head of the, the Hispanic Heritage Hall of Fame, Gabriel Tito Avila. And I'm watching Bernie as he's being handed this plaque, inducting him in. And, and he's just so pleased and Bernie's my favorite Yankee of the 1990s, wearing number 51, you know, Puerto Rican. And and so we got to chat a little bit. And I was like, wait, he wore 51 because Puerto Rico, 51st state, just to be clear. Um, th- there's multiple stories on this. Some people say it was, it was flipping Thurman Munson's 15 the other way, too. Ah, and, beautiful. And so there, there's been a couple of stories. I haven't asked Bernie about this, but I'm hoping that we follow up. Some point over the summer, so that we can we at La Vida Baseball can get a sit down with with Bernie and and talk baseball, music, and Latino culture. Yeah, music indeed. Uh, last question for you here: How can people consume, support, spread the word about La Vida Baseball? La Vida Baseball can be. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and you can just go straight to the website, lavidabaseball.com. You know, it's been going strong. We're really proud of the product that we're putting out there because it is from a Latino perspective and it's original content coming from us to you. And we always ask this of all our guests. Uh, what, what music would you like your intro and outro to be? What music are you feeling these days? Should we just play some some Bernie Williams uh, classical guitar? What do you think? Um, you know, actually, Gente de Zona, there's a song that, that, um, that this group plays about Miami. I think it's the right beat. Um, and uh, that's what I think is the rhythm of what happened in Miami. Fantastic. Hey, Adrian Burgos, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. La Vida Baseball will be spreading the word. Thanks so much, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Tremendous. That was Adrian Burgos. And now a quick word from The Nation magazine. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Look, we are living in a time when real news has never been more important and investigative journalism has never been more important. Please support and subscribe to The Nation magazine. It's the oldest weekly in the United States, dating back to 1865, and it's never been more vital than in 2017. Subscribe at www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the podcast. And now I've got some choice words about Venus Williams and the Palm Beach Gardens Police Department. Look, my bias is real. I will admit that when it comes to tennis legends Venus and Serena Williams, they have never been just athletes to me that I've merely liked or admired. 
but people that I and many others have felt an imperative to defend against detractors, ignoramuses, and dime store bigots. The reasons are obvious. There were once two black teenagers from the public courts of Compton treated with contempt of both a race and class variety by their sport, and they not only survived, but thrived. And over the last two decades, as the Williams have moved from champions to icons, my knee-jerk defensive posture has moved decisively more towards older sister Venus. And those reasons should be obvious as well. No matter what gas bags like John McEnroe and his mainstream defenders belch, Serena is securely recognized as one of the great athletes of the last century, with an army of fans and 23 Grand Slam titles to show for it. But Venus, at 37, still bludgeoning opponents half her age, has not won a Grand Slam title since 2008. This is best explained not only by her sister's dominance, but also the reality that she was diagnosed with Sorgren's syndrome in 2011, a brutal autoimmune illness affecting the joints and causing fatigue. It is a disease defined by chronic pain, and the fact that she has persevered has created a different kind of iconography than the one crafted by her sister. That is why the treatment of Venus Williams by the Palm Gardens, Florida Police Department over the last month has made me want to run to the nearest barricade. This story begins with unspeakable tragedy. On June 9th, 78-year-old Jerome Barson was killed, his wife Linda terribly injured, after Venus Williams' SUV, going five miles per hour, entered an intersection when the light was red, striking the Barson's car. The immediate public statements by police, before any kind of investigation was completed, claimed Williams was at fault for violating the right-of-way. They recklessly announced to the world in our low-information, 140-character celebrity culture that Venus Williams had effectively killed an elderly man. In a June 30th Facebook post, Venus addressed the incident, writing, I am devastated and heartbroken by this accident. My heartfelt condolences go out to the family and friends of Jerome Barson, and I continue to keep them in my thoughts and prayers, end quote. Then on Wimbledon on July 3rd, the tennis media pressed Williams to discuss how she felt about Barson's death. Williams broke down in tears, saying the following. That I'm, there are really no words to describe like how devastating and, yeah, I'm completely speechless, and it's just, yeah, I mean, I'm just... Then she put her head in her hands and left the podium before returning, a hybrid of frayed nerves and steely resolve to complete the interview. After all of this, the Palm Beach Gardens police finally issued a statement basically saying, whoops. Now while the investigation is still ongoing, police now say that Williams was driving lawfully in the intersection, which video released by TMZ appears to confirm. Amid this trauma, Venus advanced to the finals of Wimbledon, before finally falling, beating players along the way who were half of her age, players who had never even been born before Venus Williams took the grass at Wimbledon for the first time 20 years ago. Now her ability, this ride she just took us on in London, was amazing, but there is something very wrong about the entire scenario that just played out in Palm Beach Gardens. For police to state publicly that Venus was responsible for this death in advance of the facts 
is a gross dereliction of duty by the department. Palm Beach Gardens is a place of gated communities, luxury golf courses, and wealth. Both Williams sisters call it home, and it is difficult to imagine a scenario where another high-profile Palm Beach Gardens resident, like, say, pro golf star Rory McIlroy, would be treated in such a way. This isn't about Venus Williams deserving better. It's about how police departments treat black women in this country. Even living in one of the Palm Beach Gardens gated communities does not offer sanctuary. It will be more than understandable if Venus Williams just wants to get on with her life and put this ordeal behind her. But if she attempts to publicly challenge how the Palm Beach Gardens police handled this case, she won't be walking alone. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. This week, Just Stand Up Award, Just Stand Up, goes to tennis player Andy Murray for this exchange. Andy, Sam is the first U.S. player to reach a major semifinal since 2009. How would you describe the... Male player. I beg your pardon? Male player, right? Yes, first male player, (laughs) that's for sure. Now, you can't quite understand how dope that was unless you actually watch the video because you hear the chuckling in the background when Andy Murray corrects that reporter. But Andy Murray is not chuckling. He is staring daggers through this guy. And I think my favorite part was after it happened, his mother Judy tweeted proudly, that's my boy. And Serena Williams also weighed in saying, I don't think there should be a woman player and there shouldn't be a female athlete who isn't completely supportive of Andy Murray. He has spoken up for women's issues and women's rights, especially in tennis, for forever. And he does it again, you know? That's who he is and one of the things we love about him, end quote. And when I did a deeper dive into this, I found sure enough, as Serena said, that this was not a one-shot for Andy Murray, but there are whole listicles out there, listicles, of the quote-unquote 11 times in various contexts Andy Murray has called out sexism, end quote. So that's remarkable, particularly in this John McEnroe-infused tennis climate of 2017. So that's your Just Stand Up to Andy Murray. And now let's go with your Just Sit Your Ass Down award. And unfortunately, I have to give it to one of my childhood heroes, a person I grew up slack-jawed when I would watch him in amazement on the field. But of course, just sit your ass down is not about what you do on the field. It's what you say off the field and how you use your hyper-exalted platform. And here are the words of NFL and Super Bowl legend Joe Montana. Joe Montana was in New York speaking as part of a partnership with FanDuel's new fantasy golf offering. Wow, that's that's proud work right there. And he said that he just doesn't think Colin Kaepernick is good enough to be in the NFL. And if you listen to this podcast, you could know how much that would rankle me. He also said that the 49ers had to move on because Colin Kaepernick was a distraction. And this is the quote from Joe Montana. And I'm sure Joe Montana has forgotten more about football yesterday than I have learned my entire life. And yet, this is what he said about Colin Kaepernick. He said, When you complete 40-something percent of your passes, you can't play now. Even at 50%, you have a tough time competing in that league. So I don't think kneeling cost him a job. 
There are two problems with Joe Montana's two assertions. One, that Colin Kaepernick was a distraction. Two, that he only completes 40% of his passes. And that's that they are both lies. Colin Kaepernick is a career 60% passer, which granted is a little bit below what they want the average to be these days, which from what I read is 63-64%. This past year, he completed 59.7% of his passes, and guess what? His team led the league in drops, just to put that out there. And according to an advanced statistic, this is amazing for someone who's criticized for his accuracy so much, Colin Kaepernick led the NFL in passes that had no chance to be intercepted. Somehow they can figure that out these days. So he led the NFL. Not Sam Bradford, who completed over 70% of his passes, but Colin Kaepernick led the NFL in passes that had no chance to be intercepted. So this is not a case of you're allowed to have your own opinion. This is a case of Joe Montana is not allowed to have his own facts. He told lies about the factual completion percentage of Colin Kaepernick. Now, Joe Montana is certainly entitled to his opinion that Colin Kaepernick was a distraction. But my opinion that he was not a distraction is backed up by facts. Like the testimonials of his head coach, Chip Kelly, last year. Like the testimonials of teammates. And like the fact that his teammates voted for him to have the team's courage award. Give me a break, Joe Montana. On this issue, as much as it pains me to say, sit your ass down. And hey, speaking of Colin Kaepernick, now we have time for Kaepernick Watch. We took last week off from doing the Edge of Sports podcast, so this is a little bit behind the news cycle, but I gotta give a shout out to what Colin Kaepernick did on July 4th, Independence Day. While folks here in the United States were celebrating this country's independence by blowing up a small part of it, Colin Kaepernick went to Ghana, and he wrote, how can we truly celebrate independence on a day that intentionally robbed our ancestors of theirs? To find my independence, I went home. Kaepernick then followed this up with a lengthier video on Instagram that showed him going to the Kwame Nkrumah Mausoleum in Ghana, visiting a local hospital, going to Egypt where he was joined by his former 49ers teammate Marquise Goodwin. Remember how much his teammates didn't like him? Yeah, thanks Joe Montana. And I gotta say, it was just another example to me about how Colin Kaepernick, I mean, more than any public figure I can possibly remember, both through the anthem protests, his words, and now this trip on July 4th, is really putting the ethics of patriotism on trial and for public discussion. And honestly, in the era of Trump, in the era of unending war post 9-11 that's been going on now damn near almost two decades, it could not have happened soon enough. In an era where Bill Belichick wears t-shirts, sleeveless tees on the beach that show U.S. soldiers biting people in Arab garb while armed with machine guns, and he gets praised for it as a quote-unquote true patriot, as was written in the Boston Herald. We really should treasure athletes like Colin Kaepernick, who are choosing to not be stupid. And now a quick word from the second best podcast sponsored by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. 
Sincerely, this has quickly advanced in my pods to number one, or sometimes number two, depending on what the dollop is doing. But either way, absolutely love Start Making Sense. They have the most interesting guests, the most interesting conversation. I absolutely back up the slogan of this podcast. They call it Politics Without the Boring Parts. You got to listen to it. Start Making Sense. Subscribe on iTunes, or you can go to The Nation magazine every Thursday when it posts. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, the new section on the show. It's not called Edge of Books. It's not called Books on the Edge. It's called Books I Am Reading by Dave Zirin. This week, I want to read a passage from a book by Wallace Shawn called Night Thoughts. It's 80 pages of his thoughts, his ruminations, uh, his feelings, and it is absolutely remarkable. Now, if the name Wallace Shawn sounds familiar, he is an actor that I promise you you have seen in a million different movies. He's probably best known as Vecini in The Princess Bride, the person who said everything was inconceivable. Let's play a clip just so we can recall Wallace Shawn in The Princess Bride. Victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. (laughs) Yes, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. And now, a section from Night Thoughts. Not long ago, I visited some wealthy friends a young husband and wife who'd employed the same housekeeper for several years. The housekeeper was a warm, friendly, and sensible woman. She took care of the children, did some cleaning and cooking, and I too had known her for quite a while and always called her by her first name. She had worked for the husband before he was married, and when she and the husband chatted and joked together, I could see all the husband's customary tension falling away. He basked in the affection and the intimacy of this relationship they had. It was easy for him because he knew where they stood. The relationship's terms had been settled long ago. They proceeded from one day to the next on the basis that, after all, he was a superior being, and so, that being the standing assumption, they both behaved in an appropriate style. He with gentle goodwill toward her, she with a kind of amused, informal, joshing deference toward him. And at a certain point during my visit, she knelt down to pick up the toys that the children had left under the dining room table. And suddenly, I imagined that she was throwing the toys with all of her might into the husband's face, blinding him, and then that she was smashing his head into the corner of the marble tabletop with overpowering force two or three times until he was dead. Well, such things don't really happen, do they? Of course, the housekeeper knows that only bad consequences would follow if she should murder her employer. And of course, most of the time, she actually believes that he's a superior being. And so there isn't anything objectionable about the simple fact that he has a superior position in the world. And there's no particular reason to think about murdering him. And it does seem to be the case that he is superior. After all, if he weren't superior, why would he be the employer and she the housekeeper? If he weren't superior, why would she be working for him six days a week, doing all the things he asks her to do, if he weren't superior? Day after day, they played the same parts, 
And even after years, there's never been a single day on which she gave the orders and he obeyed them. And so it seems awfully clear that he must be superior. And what does he himself think? Well, he's much too refined to say this out loud. But yes, he secretly thinks that he does possess some special hidden merit. Something deep inside him that does make him superior. Something perhaps reflected in his way of speaking, his accent, the fact that he excelled in certain subjects at school, his ability to work so seriously at his desk. And he has a good idea of how a superior person would walk and dress and behave. And so he acts that way. He actually impersonates a superior being every moment of his waking life. But of course, at the same time, he's well aware that he's a total fake. He's a fraud, an imposter. What can one say? One has to marvel at the amazing ability of the human mind to accept and contain, at the same time, two entirely contradictory propositions. Because the remarkable fact that she also is not at all stupid, and she also knows that the game the two of them play every day is completely insane, she also knows that of course he's not really superior, and she's not really inferior, it's just that he's had much, much better luck. He was given some opportunities, and he took advantage of them, etc. She knows he's an imposter, and that's a very scary thought. And she knows she has to try not to think it, because if she actually thought it for too long, she might want to kill him. Which is exactly what she doesn't want to do. She knows very well that the way to find happiness in this world is not to hate your life, but somehow to learn how to accept your life. Take pride in your work, whatever it is. Derive whatever pleasure you can from whatever surrounds you. The sky, the people you like, or even the light falling on a brick wall. Well, that's all this week from the Edge of Sports podcast. As always, thank you to my co-producers, Dan Baker and David Tigabooth. Thank you for everyone out there listening to the show. If you like the Edge of Sports podcast, please go to iTunes. Please go to Stitcher. Please go to your podcast app of choice. Leave a rating. Make a comment. Tell a friend. All of that makes a huge difference and has made a huge difference. If you're a teacher out there and you want to use the podcast as an educational tool, hit me up on Twitter at Edge of Sports or through the Edge of Sports podcast Twitter feed at Edge of Sports Pod and talk to me about Skyping into your classroom. I love talking to young people about the work we do on the podcast. Thank you so much to Nation Magazine for sponsoring this show. Thank you to everybody out there listening. You can always listen to back issues of the podcast. I love calling them back issues at edgeofsportspodcast.com. For Dan Baker and David Tigaboo, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.